last in this series called God's Story, Your Story. And what I've been trying to do is to show, really, that the Bible is one big story. It's not just a random collection of history books and poems and letters. And I've also been trying to show that the story we find in the Bible is a story about God and us. God and the people he created. When we read the Bible, we find people just like us. And we also find the true God. We discover what it means to know and relate to this God who made us. And we started out quite a few months ago looking at Genesis chapter 1. We saw in that chapter the unique dignity that we have as human beings. We're told that we are made in the image of God. So we are in some way like him. And that gives us great dignity. Then we look the month after that at what has gone wrong. Our brokenness. That was in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. We saw that we were not created to be the final authority in this world. We were created to live under God's loving authority. And we could summarize God's message to the first man and woman like this. In the words of a man called Francis Schaeffer, God said to the first man and woman, Believe me and stand in your place as a creature, not as one who is autonomous. In other words, not as one who is a law unto himself or herself. Believe me and love me as a creature to his creator, and all will be well. This is the place for which I have made you. But we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that the man and woman rejected that. They decided they knew best. They claimed the final authority for themselves. They decided to try their own luck by taking God's place. And ever since, every human being and the world we live in has been broken in a deep way. We not only suffer the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin... Every single one of us repeats their rebellion all over again in our lives. All of us, on one level or another, try to be God of our own lives. We all act like we know best. But last month, we saw that God did not abandon his broken world. Having looked at Genesis chapters 1 to 3, we looked last time at chapter 12. And we heard God make a promise to Abraham. God said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That promise to Abraham set the course for the rest of human history. From that day on, God was going to be at work in his broken world. He was going to be moving it towards a definite goal. The goal of blessing for all peoples on earth. And we tried to sum that up by saying, history is going somewhere. It's not aimless or random. And this evening I want us to conclude this by looking at the thread that ties this one great story together. It's a thread running right through the heart of God's story. It's the story of the Lamb. 
And rather than looking at only one passage in the Bible, we're going to trace this story through the Bible. This thread first appears later on in the book of Genesis. The substitute on the mountain which appears in Genesis chapter 22. The story of the lamb begins with this man Abraham. The man who God had promised to make into a great nation. Now that means, of course, that Abraham has to produce at least one child. One child who could eventually become a great nation. But when God made the promise to Abraham, Abraham was an old man. And his wife Sarah wasn't far behind. And yet amazingly, we're told, God eventually enabled them to produce a son, Isaac. It seemed the fulfillment of God's promise was dependent on Isaac. But then in Genesis chapter 22, we read this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. I think it's putting it mildly to call this a test. Not only is it an unthinkable thing for a father to do to his son, it's also unthinkable in terms of the big picture of God's promises. If Isaac is killed, God's promises die with him. But amazingly, we're told, Abraham packs up and sets off. Now, we could spend the whole evening discussing what Abraham must have been thinking and why he did it. But we're only told he trudged up the mountain, carrying the fire and the knife. And we're told that Isaac walked beside him, carrying the wood for the burnt offering. And then we read this. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. What Abraham is doing here is what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. Abraham is trusting that God knows better than him and that God is good. And on the basis of that trust or that faith in God, Abraham is obeying God rather than trying to be God himself. And amazingly, just at the point where Isaac is lying on the altar and Abraham is raising the knife, we read this. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Isaac was due to die. But God provided a substitute who died in Isaac's place. And so the one condemned to die was saved. And that began a pattern. The next place we see that pattern is a few hundred years later. This time we see the substitute in Egypt, in the book of Exodus. Eventually, long after Abraham's death, his family moved down to Egypt. And they flourished in Egypt. It was in Egypt they grew from a family into a nation, the Israelites. But their large numbers made the Egyptians afraid. And in their fear, the Egyptians made slaves of the Israelites. We're told the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor. And as the Israelites cried out to God for help, God responded by sending Moses to plead with Pharaoh to let them go. But Pharaoh's slave workforce was too valuable to him. And he followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve by acting like he was God. Unlike Abraham, Pharaoh rejected God's voice when it came to him through Moses. And God responded by showing Pharaoh a series of signs. Signs that proved God's power and control. They're often known more popularly as the ten plagues. But actually, there were signs that God was God. In any case, Pharaoh resisted one sign after another. And eventually came the last of the signs, the death of the Egyptian firstborn. That was God's judgment on Pharaoh's rebellion. And God warned him about it beforehand. Now, we might think the Israelites would have been cheering about this. But actually, what God was going to do created a major problem for the Israelites. They were the people God was working to save, but they were just as guilty of rebellion as the Egyptians were. Exodus tells us that they had also refused to listen to Moses, just like Pharaoh. They had turned against Moses, actually, because his arrival seemed to be making things worse for them down in Egypt. So if God is going to come and destroy rebels, the Israelites are due to be swept away along with the Egyptians. But then in the midst of that situation, God gives Moses these instructions. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And then God explained what the lamb was for. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And further down, God says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt, And strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. 
The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And that's exactly what happened. The Israelites deserved God's judgment. But through the substitute God provided, they were saved. The lamb died so they could live. And notice what God says to the people. This will be a sign for you. In other words, this elaborate elaborate procedure that I'm having you go through, it's not some superstitious ritual. It's to teach you. God is saying, I have shown Pharaoh many signs of my power to bring judgment. And now I'm showing you a sign of how I save the guilty ones. God is saying to the Israelites, you are saved because another died the death you deserve. And when the Israelites left Egypt, God provided a law for them. The law showed them what God was like. It showed them how God's people were to live. And the law also explained how sins could be forgiven. It sets out a life of dependence on the substitute. At the heart of the law was a whole system of sacrifices. And we find that system mainly in the book of Leviticus. God took that Passover ritual from Exodus and he expanded it. The daily life of the Israelites revolved around those sacrifices. And they included not just lambs, but also bulls and goats and even birds. And again, it was not a system of superstition. It was there to teach just one basic point. We need a substitute. Even the best of us are sinful. And sinners deserve God's judgment. And so there are only two options in our situation. Either I receive the punishment of my sin myself, or a substitute receives it for me. That was the one message, really, of all those animal sacrifices. God wasn't getting them to kill those animals just for fun. And those sacrifices were not actually paying for the people's sin. They were teaching the people how much they needed a true substitute, an ultimate lamb, not an animal, but one who is a fellow human being. And one who was also free from sin. Only someone who had no sin could stand in for those who did have sin. Otherwise his death would be paying for his own sin. And that's why again and again Leviticus says the animal sacrifices are to be without defect. They have to be spotless and physically whole in every way. Now that was not because God has something against physical defects. It was teaching the lesson that the true substitute would have to be perfect. So imagine living your whole life with this being constantly acted out in front of you, month after month, year after year. Imagine it being acted out generation after generation. 
a whole nation learning the lesson. And then finally, the Bible tells us about the arrival of the true substitute. Bear in mind the context of the New Testament. The New Testament begins in a culture that's soaked in this whole system we've just been talking about. Teaching the need for a substitute. And in that context, one day John the Baptist pointed at Jesus of Nazareth and John said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And later, just like Abraham and Isaac, Jesus climbed a hill to offer a sacrifice. Just like Isaac, Jesus was the beloved only son of his father. And like Isaac, Jesus was carrying wood on his back for the sacrifice. But this time, there was no animal for the sacrifice. Jesus himself was the sacrifice. Later on, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, wrote to Christians, and he said this, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Further on in that same letter, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So all those other lambs had been pointing to this lamb. The one substitute God has provided for sinners like you and me. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, The Apostle John describes the scene in heaven today. John says this, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. John goes on to tell us that a new song is being sung to this lamb on the throne. Part of the song says this, You were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God Persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is the story of the Lamb as it unfolds throughout the whole Bible. And what the story tells us is that not only do we need a substitute who can pay for our sin, this story tells us Jesus is the only acceptable substitute. He's the only one who can take our punishment instead of us. Because he's the only one who has no sin of his own to pay for. Because Jesus is truly God, he is truly spotless. And because he's truly man, he is our true substitute. The story of the Bible is the story of rebellious people and their broken world. And it's also the story of the God who has worked in history to save rebellious people. He's done that, first of all, by teaching us about the substitute he would provide and then sending that substitute. 
And because God has done this, you and I have a response to make. We might not think of ourselves as broken sinners, but that's what we are. And we will either receive the punishment for that sin ourselves, or we will be delivered from it and restored to friendship with God. Those who will be delivered and restored are those who put their trust in the one who was punished in our place. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It could be that you want to talk about this more, and I would love to talk to you about it. In a moment, we're going to close with a song that takes us to the heart of what we've been looking at this evening. But just before we sing this together, are there any questions coming out of this? Or something that we said in a previous month that has been on your mind since? Well, let's try to sum up what the Bible teaches us about the Lamb as we sing this song together. It's called, I Come by the Blood. And maybe we could just stand and sing this before I give thanks for the food.